Welcome to our new Essex Court Chambers podcast series. Uh, we've given it the title of 10 in 10. Each week we'll discuss a case, a landmark case, that changed the area of law that it affected. And in most of the cases we look at, it will be a member of Chambers or two members of Chambers who are involved in that decision. In this episode, I'm happy to be able to talk to Graham Dunning QC and Siddharth Dar about the very interesting Supreme Court case of Taurus and Somo. That's the state oil marketing organization, the Iraq government entity for marketing its oil products. Uh, the Supreme Court decision in Taurus was given in October 2017. Members of Essex Court Chambers appeared on both sides at all three levels in the case, in the Commercial Court, the Court of Appeal, and in the Supreme Court. Graham and Sid appeared for the defendant and the respondent in the Supreme Court, SOMO. Graham Dunning is a, a senior silk in Essex Court Chambers, a former joint head of Chambers. The legal directories describe him as being a rapier-like cross-examiner, a superb advocate, and cobra deadly. Sid is described in the legal directories as a highly distinguished junior, fantastic and thoughtful, and a star performer. Uh, let's see how we get on today. Sid, could you briefly outline for us the background to the Supreme Court decision in Taurus? Good morning, Stephen. Um, everyone is familiar with the famous cases of Kuwait Airways arising out of the consequences of uh, the invasion and the conflict that followed. This case is a, perhaps a less well-known uh, case, uh, which in some senses is a lesson as to the uh, law of unintended consequences. What happened here was that sanctions were imposed by the United Nations on Iraq following the conflict some 10 years before the events in question, which led to a very specific set of arrangements adopted by Iraq, which provided the context in which questions of banking law, state immunity and the panoply of English enforcement measures came to be considered uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court. The threshold question can be simply stated, how do you buy and more importantly pay for Iraqi oil? And this case gives an insight into the mechanisms for doing so. Taurus was a Swiss domiciled oil trading company. And as you said, Iraq had set up a separate corporate entity called state oil marketing company, or SOMO, which was charged exclusively with the sale of its crude oil. Taurus and SOMO entered into a series of contracts and disputes arose under them. Uh, the contracts contained an arbitration clause and the seat was specified as Baghdad, but all the hearings took place in London before a sole arbitrator, uh, who was in this case Mr Ian Hunter of Essex Court. Uh, the award was rendered in favour of Taurus for around 8.7 million US dollars, and SOMO did not pay the award. It had challenged the award in Iraq, but that was dismissed as premature. So what was Taurus to do? It was owed a debt of nearly $9 million. It came to England. It learned that a third party, Shell, had bought two parcels of Iraqi crude from SOMO, and that Shell was using the London branch of Credit Agricole to pay for the oil, pursuant to letters of credit that were issued by Credit Agricole in its London branch. 
At this stage, it's important for listeners, I'm afraid, to focus briefly uh, on the terms of the letters of credit. As I mentioned uh, at the outset, the case arose against an important international background, namely the invasion of Kuwait and the sanctions that followed. In, In 2003, the UN Security Council had passed a resolution imposing sanctions on Iraq, under which the proceeds of sales of oil by Iraq were to be paid into an account which was held by the Central Bank of Iraq at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. It was given a special name, the Oil Proceeds Receipts Account. The reason for this was that 95% of those proceeds, or the receipts into that account, were to be used for development within Iraq. The balance of 5% was to be used to provide reparations to Kuwait. This background led to a very important feature of the letters of credit in this case. They each provided for payment to be made by Credit Agricole in New York and to the Iraq oil proceeds account at the Federal Reserve Bank. So here we had a situation where Shell is paying for oil sold by SOMO, but the money was going to the central bank's account in New York. The letters of credit referred to SOMO, the seller, as the quote-unquote beneficiary, but, and importantly, they each contained a promise to the CBI, the central bank of Iraq, to make payment into the specific account. The two key provisions were as follows. The first was that, the first stated, that provided all the terms and conditions of the letter of credit are complied with, the proceeds of the letter of credit will be irrevocably paid into your account, that's the CBI's account, with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, with reference to the Iraq oil proceeds account. The credit went on. These instructions will be followed irrespective of any conflicting instructions contained in the seller's commercial invoice or any transmitted letter. And then it said, We hereby engage with the beneficiary and the CBI that documents drawn under and in compliance with the terms of this credit will be duly honoured upon presentation as specified to the credit of the CBI account with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So just explaining what that meant, although SOMO was selling the oil to Shell, the money under the letter of credit was not going to SOMO or to its account it was going to the CBI's account. And SOMO had no control whatsoever over the destination of those funds. And under the express terms of the credit, it could not say anything to Credit Agricole about where the money was to be paid. Taurus nevertheless applied for and obtained in England leave to enforce the award of netting $9 million as a judgment. And there was no challenge by SOMO to that enforcement. Taurus then sought execution uh, against SOMO's assets. It applied for two things ex parte in England. First, for an interim third-party debt order, and secondly, for a receivership order in respect of the funds which it said were receivable by SOMO under those letters of credit issued by Credit Agricole. 
it was arising from these particular facts that the case raised the interesting issues we're going to discuss in relation to state immunity, conflict of laws, and the proper construction of the LCs and the territorial limits of English enforcement measures. That's a very helpful background, Sid. Uh, Graham, could you perhaps explain in a bit more detail the issues that arose in this case? Yes, thank you, Stephen. Um, thank you very much for chairing this conversation and for introducing us. The most generally important issue was the situs of the letter of credit debts. Now, the situs or location of a debt is, of course, a wholly artificial legal construct, because obviously a debt has no physical existence. But nevertheless, the law deems that a debt has a location or a situs. Now, this was important because under CPR 72, a third party debt order is available where there is a debt that is due or accruing due from a third party to the judgment debtor. Now, the question of the situs was really important in this case, because in general, a third party debt order under CPR 72 can be made only if the debt, which is due or is accruing due, is located or has its situs in the jurisdiction of the English courts. And that is because in 2003, in the Societe Aram case, the House of Lords held that the debt must be situated within the jurisdiction for CPR 72 to apply. And the reason, the rationale for their decision was that in making a third party debt order, the court provides the, the debtor with a statutory discharge of his obligation. He is excused from paying the person he would otherwise have to pay by making payment to the judgment creditor. And the rationale was, unless the debt was situated or located in our jurisdiction, a third party would be potentially exposed to double jeopardy because he would have to pay under the third party debt order, but run the risk that the statutory discharge under the TP, under, under the third party debt order, would not be recognized in a foreign jurisdiction. And consistent with this rationale, there's an exception that um, if in the law that's applicable in a foreign jurisdiction, an English third party debt order would be recognized as discharging the liability of the third party, then it may be possible to have a third party debt order in respect of a debt which is situated in another jurisdiction. But this was a, this was a really central point. No one challenged Societe Aram, and therefore the question was, where was this debt uh, located? What was its situs? And the uh, situs of the debt was also relevant in respect of the other head of relief that was sought to by way of enforcement, which was the receivership order. 
in, in the case called Masri in the Court of, Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Collins expressed that the English court should exercise caution when granting a receivership order over a foreign asset and would need to assess the factors connecting the asset with the jurisdiction. And obviously one of the prime factors to go into that assessment is the question of where the debt is located. So that was the, uh, the, the first and foremost issue, the situs of the letter of credit debts. But the second important issue was to whom were those debts created by the letters of credit owed? Now this question turned on the proper construction, the proper interpretation of what Sid has already explained were these unusually worded letters of credit. And the, the reason why this is important is because it is well established that in order for a third party debt order to be made, the debt must be owed either solely um, or exclusively to the judgment debtor. So in this case, if the debt was owed to the Central Bank of Iraq, into whose account in New York it was to be paid, either solely to the Central Bank of Iraq or jointly to the Central Bank of Iraq, then no third party debt order would be possible. And there was a subsidiary issue connected with this, which was even if the debt was owed solely to SOMO, was the commitment in these unusual terms of the letters of credit uh, such that because the debt was directed to be paid to the Central Bank of Iraq, there should be no third party debt order. Uh, the, 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 there were further issues, I won't go into these in, in anywhere near as much detail, but um, should the receivership order have been made, given the international context, was a third issue. And a fourth issue, which was uh, important at first instance and in the Court of Appeal, but not pursued in the Supreme Court, was, was the status of SOMO, which was after all the state oil marketing organisation of Iraq, um, and part, in, in, in many ways, of the government of Iraq, was its status such that it was entitled to state immunity in its own right? Thank you, Graham. Now, um, this enforcement action took four years um, to go all the way from the first instance up to the Supreme Court. Graham, you only became involved in once it reached the Court of Appeal stage, so Sid, uh, you were involved first instance in 2013. Could you just explain to us how the case was resolved before Mr. Justice Field in the Commercial Court? Sure. Um, at first instance, uh, a number of the issues that Graham has highlighted were relevant. Uh, in essence, Mr. Justice Field uh, focused first on the proper construction of the letters of credit. So he took I think the second issue that Graham had identified uh, as his starting point, and he said that the Central Bank of Iraq, the CBI, was with SOMO the joint promissory of the credit agricole obligation. So credit agricole owed debt to both SOMO and to the CBI jointly. Now, 
once he decided that was the proper interpretation of the credits, uh, it was essentially game over. On that basis alone, he therefore decided for the reasons that Graham has identified uh, that the third-party debt order and indeed the receivership order had to be set aside. That was not only because of uh, the points that the third-party debt order had to be owed solely or exclusively to the judgment debtor, it also uh, triggered the application of uh, central bank immunity under the uh, State Immunity Act. Having dealt with that point, Mr Justice Field then did turn to consider the other reasons that we had advanced for contending that the third party debt order and receivership orders should be set aside. And in brief, on Citus, he decided uh, that the debt was situated in London uh, and not in New York. That's the debt under the letters of credit. Uh, He dealt with this very briefly, perhaps understandably, given his conclusion on the first issue. I, I have to confess, the reasoning is somewhat hard to pass but it seems to be because certain steps were to be taken in London if documents were to be presented at the CBI's counters in Baghdad, but there's not much more in the judgment to discern what the reasoning was on the CITES issue. On state immunity, as, as Graham has said, it was an important issue at first instance and in the Court of Appeal. He essentially applied the well-known presumption that a state identity which has separate corporate personality uh, is to be respected as having that separate corporate personality and is not to be uh, considered an emanation of the state. Uh, And nor was SOMO said to be exercising sovereign authority when entering uh, into sale contracts for uh, the sale of Iraqi oil. There were other points that were also raised at first instance. Those were the three, three key issues before Mr Justice Field. As Stephen mentioned, I became involved at the Court of Appeal stage. In fact, both sides brought in Queen's Counsel for the argument in the the Court of Appeal, recognising that it was going to be important. And uh, that importance is reflected in the fact that that four whole days were allocated to the appeal in the Court of Appeal. And at the end of those four days, it emerged that the Court of Appeal was split at least in part. So far as the CITUS issue was concerned, the court held that it was bound to follow the decision of the Court of Appeal in a case called Power Kerber, which had decided that the CITUS of a debt under a letter of credit was the place of payment and not the place of residence of the bank. So that was, according to the Court of Appeal in Kerber, an exception to the normal rule that a debt is situated at the place of payment of the debtor. So far as the immunity of SOMO was concerned, the court held that SOMO was not entitled to immunity under the State Immunity Act 1978, as it was effectively an autonomous commercial uh, enterprise. But so far as the construction and interpretation of the letters of credit were concerned, and the critical question of 
to whom was the debt owed, the court was split. On the one hand, Lord Justices Briggs and Sullivan held that the debt was owed to the Central Bank of Iraq, and therefore it was not a debt of SOMO, and of course there was um, Central Bank immunity. But on the other hand, Lord Justice Moore Bick dissented, and he held that the debt was owed to SOMO. When the case uh, then came to the Supreme Court, uh, the arguments were, as I think often happens, refined, and it was decided not to persist with the argument that SOMO was an emanation of the Iraqi state or exercising sovereign authority. And instead, the argument was focused on two issues. First, the vexed question of the construction of the letters of credit. And secondly, the CITES question. So why is the decision of the Supreme Court in Taurus uh, important? Well, first of all, Stephen, it's important because of what was decided in relation to the situs or the location of the debt. This was a clear change in the law. Uh, and just by way of reminder, this issue mattered because of the Sassizi Aram House of Lords decision, which stressed that the general rule was that a third party debt order can only be granted by the court in relation to debts that are situated in the jurisdiction of the English courts. Now, Power Kerber, which I referred to a little, little while ago, had been a very thinly argued decision of a 2-1 majority in the Court of Appeal some 30 or 40 years ago. In that case, in just a couple of sentences, it was held by Lord Denning and Lord Justice Griffiths that the general rule, the residence rule, about situs of debts did not apply to letters of credit. In other words, for letters of credit, instead of the situs being the place of residence of the debtor, and in the case of letters of credit only, the situs was the place of payment under the letter of credit. Now the reasoning of Lord Denning and Lord, Lord Justice Griffiths was so thin that when this matter was argued in the Court of Appeal in our case, Lord Justice Morbick was initially uncertain and questioned me as to whether there was in fact any ratio at all in the Power Kerber case to that effect. Uh, but he was persuaded, and indeed the, um, the, the entire court was persuaded that there was only really one or two sentences. Um, that was the ratio of the case. But clearly he wasn't convinced by the reasoning behind the exception that had been created by Lord Denning and Lord Justice Griffiths. And equally, there was never any ringing endorsement of the power curber decision in, for example, Dicey or any other legal textbooks. Although it is fair to say, as we pointed out in argument in the Supreme Court, that the law had been expressed as being the same as power curber in various Commonwealth jurisdictions. And in fact, Court of Appeals decision in Power Kerber had actually been followed, I think twice in Canada, and approved, if I recall correctly, 
in uh, Professor Janet Walker's well-known Canadian book on the conflict of laws. Now, despite the Commonwealth position, such as it was, and despite the fact that Power Kerber, decision of the Court of Appeal in Power Kerber had stood for several decades, the Supreme Court felt no difficulty in overruling Power Kerber unanimously. They said it was wrong in principle to have a different rule for letters of credit than for other debts. Although they didn't really explain in great detail as to why they reached that conclusion. Whether the reasoning was detailed or not, there was clearly a direct change in English law and clear confirmation that the normal rule, that the situs of a debt is the debtor's residence, now applies to letters of credit. And this is, of course, a matter of some practical importance and consequence, given the prevalence of letters of credit in international trade, and the fact that London, in many ways, is a hub for financing international trade and for letters of credit in general. Stephen, you, you asked why the decision of the Supreme Court was important, and undoubtedly the CITES issue is extremely important, uh, perhaps most so for conflicts of law nerds, but... Um, it was an important decision on that point, but but I'd like to actually look at another aspect of the decision, which uh, I think it has uh, important resonance in terms of general contractual principles as well, and that is the approach the Supreme Court took to the construction of the letters of credit. Now, it's absolutely true that the letters of credit here were unusual and indeed bespoke. Uh, but they raised difficult questions. We know that they were difficult because uh, the Supreme Court was split three to two on them. And indeed, uh, the different conclusions by judges below indicate that as well. Um, I think the decision is of interest as a matter of general contractual approach because the case really raised in quite sharp relief an issue almost philosophical as to whether you look at the form of the contractual text, and in particular the established structure within which letters of credit usually operate, which was really what Taurus was saying, or you look at the substance of the arrangements in the particular case, uh, which was our position, to decide what the text really meant. If I can try to explain that, there was no dispute in this case that SOMO was identified in the LCs as the beneficiary. And in a usual case, that would be the end of the analysis as to whom the debt was owed uh, by the bank. And for the majority in this case, it in effect was. Uh, the difficulty arose on both sides because of the bespoke arrangements in the LCs in issue. And the majority, therefore, had to grapple with whether the separate promises that were being made to the CBI to pay the money into what was clearly its, its account made any difference. So what this case really raised, if we step back for a moment, was the following question. If A, that is Shell or Credit Agricole in this case, B, that is SOMO, and C, that is the CBI, 
all agree that a debt, which would otherwise be paid by A to B, credit ag to SOMO, would instead be paid and only paid by A to C, i.e. from credit agricole to the CBI, is the position that the debt is due from A to B, i.e. from credit agricole to SOMO, with payment to C, the CBI, discharging that debt, or is the debt actually owed by A to C? Now, apologies to listeners if that was slightly difficult to follow, but uh, hopefully you understand the basic proposition. Each of the Supreme Court judges gave their own views on that question, and the eventual solution that was adopted by the majority for identifying what was being promised to the CPI was, I think, highly novel. They said that the debt was owed to SOMO, but that there was a collateral promise to the CPI to pay that debt into its account, in effect, as to the mechanics of payment. And that obligation only sounded in damages and did not prevent the issuance of the third-party debt order. Now, in order to square the circle, there was a very heavy emphasis by the majority on the UCP, which was incorporated into the letters of credit, and its understanding of the term beneficiary. And Lord Clark, uh, for, uh, who gave one of these speeches for the majority, stressed this heavily. He said... Uh, he endorsed the reasoning of uh, Lord Justice Moore Bick, who had emphasised that letters of credit operate within a well-recognised and familiar form of instrument, and that it was, uh, and that one could not ignore the established structure within which they operated. And indeed, he quoted uh, uh, what the UCP says uh, at paragraph twenty of the judgment. He said, um, having referred to the fact that uh, SOMO was identified as the beneficiary, that this was, in my opinion, of some importance because UCP 600 commands worldwide support. And then he referred to its own forward, in which the UCP described its own objective as an objective since attained to create a set of contractual rules that would establish uniformity in practice so that practitioners would not have to cope with a plethora of often conflicting national regulations. Now, the reason the minority differed from the approach of the majority was in in essence, because they put greater weight on the bespoke arrangements, uh, as the majority in the Court of Appeal had. In fact, Lord Mans, in his dissent, and I think Graham will pick up on this later, said that it was important not to be mesmerised by the term beneficiary, And if you were being perhaps uh, ungenerous to the majority, you would say that was the approach uh, that was adopted. One might respectfully suggest that whilst the UCP 600 no doubt is intended to create uniformity in a normal case, this case was anything but normal. uh, And that is what persuaded both the majority in the Court of Appeal and minority in the Supreme Court to side with SOMO. But that may just be sour grapes from me. Where I think this case is interesting for those listening um, is that it it does provide an example for 
uh, practitioners, if you have a similar set of contractual rules, such as the UCP, but other sets as well, that are said to be intended to, or recognised as intending, to create uniformity in practice and a common understanding about what certain words and concepts mean. The majority's approach in Taurus, I think, provides a useful uh, a useful arrow in your armoury uh, in terms of the proper approach to difficult issues of construction. That's very clear. Thank you. Now, um, one of the themes that you can sense in the two dissenting judgments in the Supreme Court, the judgments of Lords Mance and Newberger, is that the third party debtor, in this case A, in your model, uh, still faces the risk of double jeopardy in a situation where C has the benefit of this so-called collateral obligation sounding in damages. I was wondering whether either of you could uh, help us with how that risk is squared off, if at all, by the majority reasoning. There's a real difficulty, I think, in terms of how the majority does square that off, or at least there is if you uh, adopt the approach uh, that was advocated by Lord Mance. One of the problems here, we were obviously focusing on the position of SOMO and the CBI, is if you look at the position of the bank, Credit Agricole. There was an argument that was raised um, at first instance and in the Court of Appeal, and actually that, that ran through into the Supreme Court, uh, uh, relating to what we called the honest dealing principle, which had been principle referred to in earlier cases. The basic idea was that a judgment creditor, uh, which was here Taurus, could not be put in a better position vis-a-vis the third-party debt than the judgment debtor was. So if the judgment debtor, which was here SOMO, did not have a right to payment of the debt, the law should not grant the judgment creditor, which was Taurus, better right than SOMO had vis-a-vis the debt that was owed by Credit Agricole. This argument had been accepted by Mr Justice Field on the basis that SOMO had no interest in or rights over the oil proceeds accounts, um, and so it could not be the subject of a third-party debt order. The, the Court of Appeal, at least Lord Justice Morbick, had disagreed with that, and his approach was endorsed by the Supreme Court. They said that there was no independent principle of honest dealing. Now, the reason this is important is because um, the, the obligation that was owed to the CBI is really was really the foundation of our honest dealing argument. Whilst the Supreme Court accepted that the bank owed the CBI that contractual obligation, uh, which sounded in damages, they said it didn't actually prevent the third party debt order being issued. If you're credit agricole, that causes you some real potential problems. As I think Graham had said earlier, the point of a third party debt order, or the justification for it, is that it operates to discharge the debt that was owed by the third party, here the bank, to the judgment debtor. The court is comfortable with making that order only 
when it means that the third party, who is innocent and a stranger to the relevant dispute, attains a good discharge of that debt. But on the majority's analysis, and I think this is the point you're making, Stephen, they had to grapple with this collateral obligation that is owed by the bank to the CBI, which sounds in damages. And the question then arises, wouldn't the bank, Credit Agricole, be liable to the CBI for not paying the letter of credit debt into the relevant oil proceeds account in New York? I think the majority fairly brusquely swept this point aside. The answer they gave was that the third party debt order against the debt that was owed to SOMO on their analysis essentially discharged the bank's obligation to the CBI, i.e. the obligation as to payment mechanics. Lord Sumption referred to it as an overriding effect of the third party debt order. What Lord Manse didn't really like this approach. He said the difficulty that had was then that the third party debt order was not only attaching a debt owed by a third party to the judgment debtor, which might be fair enough, but it was overriding the rights of a fourth party, which was here, the CBI, to receive payment into its account. It, it seems, if you read the judgments carefully, that the concern that the majority had was that if they didn't reach the conclusion they did, it would otherwise become easier for judgment debtors to sidestep uh, execution of their debts. But as I say, the reasoning on that point was fairly brief. So all in all, um, through the three layers of judicial consideration, nine judges looked at this point. Uh, They probably had between them a combined professional legal experience of, let's call it, 500 years or so. Uh, They were split overall 5-4 in favour of your client, Taurus, on the uh, construction of the letter of credit, at any rate on this narrow point. But ultimately, uh, the split in the Supreme Court is the one uh, that mattered, and that was the 3-2 split. Some of the credit for that split, I think it's fair to say, has to go to the advocate uh, for Taurus, uh, one Gordon Pollock. QC, the former head of Essex Court Chambers, who was appearing on this occasion in what I believe was his 30th or 31st appearance in the highest appellate court in the land. Uh, Graham, do you have any observations just to throw in about Gordon and how the hearing went, and Gordon's role in the hearing in the Supreme Court? Well, yes. I mean, this was, I, I think that Gordon was into his 30s in terms of appearances in the House of Lords and the Supreme Court. And of course, sadly, uh, this was his his last last appearance. And I mean, Gordon probably takes the credit for the rather novel uh, solution that the Supreme Court came to. But one of the things that I take away from this, and I'll come back to the reasoning in a moment, is just how difficult it is to predict or, or to advise clients as to how judges will react to pure points of construction. This, this was a very limited point of construction. The letter of credit stretched over just one or two pages in um, capitalised text. Uh, there, were, there was no witness evidence that of any relevance. There was some background material, but the 
the higher courts essentially held that most of that background material was it was irrelevant to the construction of the letters of credit. So you just had uh, a few hundred um, words of text to construe. And what do you get? You get the situation where the, the first instance judge held that the, the debt was owed jointly to SOMO and to, the, and to the Central Bank of Iraq. The majority in the Court of Appeal held that it was owed only to the Central Bank of Iraq and not to, to SOMO. The minority in the Supreme Court agreed with, 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 with that conclusion, but the majority considered that there was an obligation owed to the Central Bank of Iraq, but it wasn't a debt. It was simply a collateral warranty sounding only in damages. And for my part, I find it hard to disassociate myself from the argument and I, I, I have to say that I really regard that as a somewhat artificial device for simply finding a way of enforcing the arbitration award in this particular instance. Now, the minority in, was, was formed of no less than the president, Lord, Lord Newberger, and the vice president, Lord Mance, of the Supreme Court. During the course of the hearing, there was a clear split um, and one could tell this from the way that the oral argument was going, between uh, Lord Sumption and Hodge um, on one hand, who were clearly favouring Mr Pollock's argument, um, and on the other hand, uh, Lord Newberger and Lord Mance, who were favouring my argument and gave uh, Mr Pollock quite a difficult time in, in his reply. Uh, throughout all of this, the, the fifth judge, Lord Clark, kept very quiet. He kept his cards close to his chest. And if I recall correctly, uh, he asked only one question very near the end of the of the hearing, which lasted for almost two days. In the event, he decided to go with Lord Sumption and, and Lord uh, Hodge. But clearly there was a fairly uh, bitter argument, a very sharp difference of opinion between the minority and the majority. Lord Mance, uh, for example, uh, used fairly pejorative arguments and, and descriptions in his criticism of the reasoning of the of the majority, and he accused them, for example, of forcing the letter of credit arrangement in what he called a procrustean fashion into a preconceived model. What he meant by that, of course, was that there's the model of the, of the opener and the beneficiary, and the Supreme Court was saying, well, SOMO is named as the beneficiary, and therefore it must be the person who is the beneficiary of the debt, and that they were forcing the case into that preconceived model by reference to the UCP and so on. Um, as Sid said, he said it was important not to be mesmerised by the term uh, beneficiary, which was, of course, another implicit criticism. But he was actually explicit in his criticisms of the majority's view. Um, he, he said that their analysis, that there was a debt owed to the beneficiary 
and a collateral warranty sounding only in damages owed to the CBI was an incoherent novelty in our law with potential to create confusion in the future. Well, I can tell you that um, being on the losing side, losing an argument with five judges in your favour and four against is of uh, no consolation to the client, nor is it a consolation to the client that the two most senior judges in the in the land, the president and the vice president of the Supreme Court, were on your side and that they think that the majority's view was in an incoherent novelty. Um, you've still lost. Um, so uh, that, that's one of my takeaways from the case. It's very hard to predict how judges will react to pure points of construction as this was. Second takeaway is um, it, the case shows how the interaction of issues can make it um, make, make appellate litigation somewhat um, unpredictable. Uh, I think it, 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 it probably everyone would agree that this case would never have got to the stage of the Supreme Court granting permission to appeal if the situs point had not been there. Now, that was an argument which was developed late on in the commercial court hearing, uh, and, and it then became the unanimous basis of the Court of Appeal decision, relying on the, the earlier decision of power curber, which the Supreme Court overruled. I, I think it's almost undoubtedly the case that it was the power curber point which interested the Supreme Court. And, and But for that, the matter of construction would have rested in the Court of Appeal with victory for SOMO uh, because the, the Court of Appeal held that the debt was owed only to the Central Bank of Iraq. So the reason why permission to appeal was given was to overturn power curber. But having opened the door to the Supreme Court hearing, the Supreme Court were also able, of course, to overturn the decision on construction with their novel approach of finding a separate warranty owed to the Central Bank of Iraq, sounding only in, in damages. So those are the two takeaways. First of all, the how the interaction of issues can be unexpectedly determinative and how difficult it can be to predict what judges will do when faced with pure points of construction. Sid, do you have any uh, important takeaways from this decision? Just one final one, which is... Uh... Uh, something of an irony in this case. It, it provides, although SOMO lost uh, here before the Supreme Court, it provides a practical example uh, of both the issues which arise in seeking to enforce awards against a state-owned enterprise, but in a sense, it also provides a roadmap for how to uh, to ensure, uh, if if that is your aim, seek to avoid execution. In this case, the irony arises because subsequent to the dispute uh, occurring, SOMO changed the payment arrangements under their letters of credit so that the, the LCs became very clear in requiring payment only to go to the Central Bank of Iraq account. 
thereby triggering state immunity and making it clear that Soma was not the beneficiary. Uh, so uh, that is perhaps one further takeaway, uh, aside from all of the technical and legal arguments. Well, thank you to both of you for that very insightful discussion of the issues in Taurus. It strikes me that Taurus is one of those cases uh, that illustrates a number of things uh, more generally. One of those is that it's not always the cases uh, that turn on hundreds of millions or indeed billions of dollars uh, that make or raise the most interesting points and which change the law. It is a case which in a very real sense changed the law. It's also one of those cases where there are multiple specialisms of practice areas involved. There was the public international law aspect through the state immunity point, even though that wasn't in the Supreme Court. The private international law point to do a situs of the debt, where the law was quite clearly changed by the Supreme Court. And of course, the pure banking issues arising around the interpretation and proper approach to interpretation of letters of credit. It is a very interesting case. And thanks to both Graham and Sid for their help in the discussion of it today. Now, next week on the podcast series, we'll be chatting to Jeffrey Gruder, QC, and Philippa Hopkins, QC, discussing an interesting case in the law of shipping, which also went to the Supreme Court, and that's the decision of the Ocean Victory. Uh, before I leave you today, I'd like to thank uh, Catherine Ratcliffe, junior tenant at Essex Court Chambers, for her assistance in the research uh, behind this one, and also Lucy Smith, the head of marketing for her assistance in the production of this podcast. And you'll be able to get access to uh, this podcast on the Essex Court Chambers website and elsewhere, such as Spotify and Apple iTunes. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.